I always appreciate the work of our musicians who uh, accompany us in our worship on Sunday mornings. I'm over here on Saturday mornings myself often, and, and Ron gets them here bright and early and works them hard. And we, uh, we enjoy the fruit of that labor. So I appreciate them and the sacrifices they make to join us. So open your Bibles up, please, to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, if you're using a pew Bible, page 1135. Page 1135 will land you in the 11th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. We're looking at verses 11 through 15 together this morning. This is picking up something we began last week. We were looking at those verses together last week, and we didn't manage to get all the way through. So uh, we're going to circle back. I'll review somewhat briefly the message from last week and just say to you now that that uh, if this is something that you want to explore more, I suggest you to go on the Internet and download it or whatever and, and uh, listen to it because it's a more thorough and more careful exposition of those verses. And then we will carry forward the balance of the uh, section together this morning. This afternoon at uh, 2 o'clock, there's going to be a group of uh, college students and they'll be uh, meeting in my home to discuss the kingdom of God. This will be the third monthly meeting of this uh, particular uh, group of, of men and women who are reading a book called uh, The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean. It's a book that was written back in the 50s. And in that book, uh, McLean traces the kingdom of God throughout the scriptures from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And in his inductive study of the kingdom of God, he traces its origin, its development, its postponement, and then its later restoration to the nation of Israel. An event that, according to the Apostle Paul, is very, very closely tied into what it is we're talking about this morning. If you've never read McLean's book, let me put in a little advertising plug for you right now. There are no pictures, and the print is very small. And there are 580 pages in the book. But those things aside, if I had to make a list of the top 10 books that have most affected me in my life, I think I would place that book, if not number one, certainly number two. It is one of the most significant books I have ever read in my life. And so if you've not read it, I highly commend it to you. The Greatness of the Kingdom, Alva J. McLean. So we're continuing our study here. Let me just read the text beginning in verse 11. I say then, I say then, Paul says, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I and I'm an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? As we noted last time, the consistent testimony throughout the book of Acts is that Israel responded to the gospel message as it was presented to them by the various apostles with an attitude of obstinance and argumentativeness. 
The very condition that at the end of chapter 10, verse 21, Paul says is true of those people. All day long, Paul says, in the words of God, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. As I say, this is a universal testimony as you go through the book of Acts. The gospel is preached. There are a small remnant who believe, which Paul discussed earlier in in Romans 11 here, verses 1 to 10, but the vast majority of the nation of Israel would have nothing to do with this message. In fact, the very last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, records Paul's last public encounter with the Jewish authorities that are there in Rome. And Paul's discussion with them was centered on the kingdom of God. A discussion that went very badly. Reading to you from Acts 28, beginning in verse 23. And when they, that is the Jewish authorities, had set a day for him, they came to Paul at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. And trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. And thus, Luke closes out his book of Acts covering the first 30 years of gospel preaching in the church. It ends... Very, very badly. It ends dismally. It ends with the nation of Israel represented here in their leadership wanting nothing to do with their Messiah. They have been hardened, as Paul says back in verse 7 of this same chapter. The vast bulk, the vast majority of the nation of Israel have been hardened by God. They have been confirmed, they have been calcified in their unbelief, and it remains that way to this day. There is a small remnant always coming from within the nation that will embrace the Messiah, but the vast majority want nothing to do with Him. Recognizing that reality, even here, the Apostle Paul raises what appears to be a logical question, verse 11. I say then, that is referring back to verse 7 and the reality that a few have been chosen out of this nation to receive salvation, but the rest have been hardened. I say then, in light of that, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Meaning, has, have they been completely cut off by God? This vast remnant, or, or this vast majority rather, is it now only a remnant and is that all it will ever be? Has somehow God's promises to the Jews as a nation been nullified or voided by their unbelief? Has God cast off that people 
whom in Isaiah 45, verse 4, he calls his elect? That's the question. Of course, again, verse 11, we went over this in detail last time. Paul's answer is very emphatic here. May it never be. May it never be. It may seem to you like a logical conclusion. It may seem to you, based on all the evidence of your eyes, based on your reading and understanding even of the Scriptures, Paul says that maybe it seems logical that they have fallen never to rise again. He says, may it never be. They are not hardened by God beyond recovery. They are, verse 28, 29, same chapter. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. May it never be, perish the thought, that somehow God is done with the nation of Israel. That somehow His great promises to them of salvation and a future kingdom have been set aside permanently. May it never be. But we live in that day. That time between the ages, as it were, in which Israel is definitely hard to the gospel. The great Bible teacher S. Lewis Johnson of the last century said the following, and I quote, The joy in the house of the father at the return of the prodigal son will always be tempered as long as the elder brother refuses to come in. I thought he had a good way of saying that. There is joy that, that some come in, the remnant comes in, and, and there are some being saved out of Israel all the time. But the vast majority refuse to come in, and that tempers the joy of God. But Paul says it's not going to always be that way. They have not been cut off by God. They have not stumbled so as to fall. He protests such a conclusion such an observation, and, and we should join him in that. We should join him in that protest as well. Any, any scheme of biblical interpretation that teaches that God has rejected his people Israel and has somehow transferred their kingdom promises to a church ought to be protested. And it ought to be protested as violently and as vehemently as the Apostle Paul does here in verse 11. May it never be. So we have something to protest here. Beyond that, and still reviewing, we have something to proclaim. Something to proclaim. Paul says, salvation by their transgression, but by their transgression, verse 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Paul is positive there is going to be a a fulfillment, a filling up someday. He talks here about their transgression. Their specific sin, that is their rejection and crucifixion of their own Messiah. And what Paul tells us here is is that transgression, verse 12, that rejection of Messiah, that that refusal to receive him, that turning him over to the Romans and, and forcing Pilate into that situation where he crucified Christ, rather than frustrating the purposes of God, is actually the means by which God accomplishes his great and mysterious 
plan, verse 25. It's a plan that involves Gentile salvation and Jewish envy. Look again at that verse, verse 11. But by their transgression and salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is to make Israel jealous, to make Israel envious. That is a mysterious, mysterious plan of God. And I'm going to take that back up with you a little bit later on down in verse 14. But notice Paul says here in verse 12 that there are, there are two specific things that are accomplished by Israel's rejection. He says that their transgression, that is their rejection of the Messiah, led to riches for the world. That is their crucifixion of Messiah and his resurrection has purchased redemption for the world. There could be no salvation. In fact, Peter says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah, redemption has now been thrown open to mankind. He was the one long awaited by the prophets. He is the one who was spoken of in Isaiah 53, who would be the suffering servant whose death would atone for the sin of his people. And so it was the very fact in the, in the mystery of God that death of Messiah purchases redemption, riches, as Paul calls it here, verse 12, for the world of mankind, the whole world, all ethnic groups. But beyond that, Paul goes on to say their failure is riches for the Gentile. That is, after the resurrection of Messiah, when he was presented alive by many convincing proofs, as it says in in Luke, that the nation of Israel continued to reject him. They continued to fail. They continued to refuse Messiah. And the result of that refusal meant that the gospel turned from them and went to the Gentiles. Went to the Gentiles. It is riches for Gentiles. Gentiles who previously had been excluded from the Abrahamic covenant. Gentiles who previously had been on the outside looking in, as it were. Gentiles who previously could only come so close to the God of Israel and no closer. Now it has been thrown wide open to them. Now the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Now is wide open access for you and I who were once always at a distance. Acts chapter 11 again sort of records that historical event. This failure of Israel to Receive the resurrected Messiah. You remember the, the account Stephen was preaching to them. And he so infuriated the nation that they ultimately dragged him out and stoned him. But beginning in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 21, Luke records for us there, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. That is, that the message was continually being confined to the nation of Israel. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. That is, that that which Israel had refused and their failure to receive was now turned to the Gentiles and they came flooding in. They came flooding in. 
So we look around here this morning in this very building. What we see is primarily a Gentile church. We see a church filled up with hundreds and hundreds of Gentiles who have come to know the one true God of Israel by faith in Israel's rejected Messiah. It is indeed our riches. But notice what Paul says here in verse 12, the end of the verse. Amazing as those things are, he says, is riches of redemption for the entire world, that is salvation thrown open to all, Jew and Gentile, and the specific failure of Israel, which opens up salvation to the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be, their filling up be? This word here, fulfillment, is the same word used over in verse 25, where it talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. It speaks about a a filling up of numerical strength. The idea that, that there's, there's not enough people in the group, but someday the group is going to grow large. It's going to grow to full capacity. It's going to be filled up. The majority of Israel today is, lies in a state of unbelief, hardened in their heart, separated from their own God, without hope in the world. But someday, Paul says... A great event is going to happen and Israel is going to pour in. And their number is going to grow. Their numerical strength is going to grow. They're going to be redeemed. It says in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Saved. The day is coming. The day is coming. But notice what Paul says here, verse 12. It's really amazing the, the contrast he presents He says redemption is our riches. But then he goes on to say, how much more? That is, how much greater, how much grander, how much spectacular will it be when Israel comes to believe? When Israel now comes to believe. Their present hardness of heart has thrown open the doors of salvation to you and I. And the amazing blessings that we enjoy in spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Paul says we enjoy all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We are rich in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, great as that is, how much more will you receive when Israel repents and comes to faith? How can there be anything more than what you've got now? What can you imagine that is greater than what God has given you already? The answer lies, I am convinced, in the promises, the prophetic promises of the great messianic kingdom. That that all the prophets spoke of and said the day is coming. The day is coming in which all of the corruption, all of the wickedness, all of the rebellion, all of Adam's curse that lies upon this earth will be reversed. That there will be a day coming when sickness, when when illness, when death, when deformity, when poverty, when injustice, when war, when starvation, when blasphemy, when false witness, or, or worship rather, When all of these things will be overturned. A time when the deepest longing of the human heart to live in a world that is no longer defiled, bent, and twisted by sin will be our possession. 
This is the how much more he's talking about. Their fulfillment, Israel's salvation, the time when the nation finally comes to see and embrace their Messiah will bring in, will usher in the great and glorious days of Messiah's kingdom. The words of Revelation chapter 20, the great millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. Deep down inside, deep down inside, there is a longing to live and enjoy life as it was meant to be. This is the how much more that Paul's talking about. And the good news, the good news, beloved, the news that we need to proclaim, that we need to shout from the housetops, is that day's coming. That day is coming. When all that is wrong will be made right. Redeemed now, yes. Citizen of heaven now, yes. Spiritual union with Christ now, yes. Living in a messed up world, yes. But the day is coming. The day is coming. And I hope you can sense the excitement for it. The more I, the more I study this, I told Carol yesterday, I said, I get so fired up when I read about this. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Establish your kingdom. Because we sure know politicians can't do it. Huh? Politicians can't do it. Christ will do it. Christ will do it. There is a day coming when the blind will see, when the lame will walk, when the deaf will hear, when the knowledge of God will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. One of the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9 and beginning in verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and boy, does this world need peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is a message to proclaim. This is a message to proclaim. This is, by the way, in the words of Matthew and Mark, the gospel writers, the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. It is coming. It is coming. So we have something to protest. Those who want to say God is done with Israel and sweep them aside. Invalidate the promises of the Old Testament. Transfer them somehow to the church and in some spiritual fashion. We should protest such things. We also have something to proclaim. We have a positive message, a glorious message. A message that resonates with thoughtful people and that is Christ is returning and when Christ returns, He will establish His throne. Beyond that, we have something to ponder. We have something to ponder. Verses 13 and following. Paul says, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I may move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. You know, the history of the Christian church has long been marred with an attitude of superiority. 
an attitude of superiority, and, and frequently a hateful persecution of the Jewish people. That is the long, dark history of Christendom. Evidently, Paul senses that the potential for that even now, even in this early stage. Notice down in verse 18, let your eyes drop down there. Paul says, do not be arrogant. He's writing to Gentiles here. He's writing to you and I. Paul already can, can sort of sense the, the early germination of these seeds of arrogance, these sinful attitudes that will spring up among the Gentiles. So in an attempt to head it off at the pass, he writes here. He speaks kind of autobiographically in these couple of verses here. And, and he talks about his involvement in the divine plan. Paul, how do you fit in to this mysterious plan that God is working out here? What is your role in this? Speaking to you, verse 13, or Gentiles. And as much as I am an apostle of the Gentiles... Paul says, I am, I am the one sent by Christ to bring the message to the Gentiles. Kind of amazing to me when you think about that. Here's a man who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Here was a guy who was steeped in Pharisaical Judaism. If anybody could earn their way to heaven on a self-righteous ticket, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And Christ knocked him to the ground on his way to Damascus, opened his eyes to the truth, and turned him loose to preach the gospel to the very people he once despised. Paul says, my ministry, what Christ has sent me on, the mission for which I have been sent, is to create jealousy or envy, ultimately, among my own countrymen. I go to the Gentiles. I preach to the Gentiles. I throw open, as it were, the gates of salvation to the Gentiles. And I do it in the economy of God so that Israel will become jealous. So that God might save some of them. Now, that seems like kind of a strange way of doing things, don't you? This is the way God works in here. He says, the Gentiles, they, they now enjoy a close personal relationship with the God of Israel. A close personal relationship. Remember in the Old Testament, the God of Israel, he is somewhat distant from them. Terrifying, fearful. They approach him through shadows and symbols and sacrifices. They can never, only the high priest once a year and only for a brief moment can even enter into the presence of the Holy of Holies. God is high and holy and fearful and distant. Gentiles, they can come right into his presence, right into the presence of the God of Israel. They have that personal relationship with him. They speak with him as Abba, Father, Daddy. They love, they read, they cherish Israel's sacred scriptures. Lest you forget. This is a Jewish book written by Jewish men. And yet we have claimed it for ourselves. It's now our book. We enjoy that which was given to the Jews. We now benefit from the spiritual blessings of their new covenant. Access right 
to God. Enjoying that unhindered access. The new heart, the law written within the Holy Spirit of God, long foretold by the prophets, now residing within us. All these things designed to provoke Israel to take a second believing look at her Messiah. The sad reality of it all is the sad reality of the history of the Christian church is that many of those who claim to follow Christ live inconsistent and hypocritical lives. Lies that lead unbelieving Jewish people to conclude, why should I become a Christian when my behavior is better than that of the Christians that I know? See, Paul says it was designed to draw Israel back. Our relationship with her God, our holiness by our attachment to her God was designed by God to be appealing to her. And yet how often we treat them with arrogance. We're better than they are. Or that our lives are lived at such a low spiritual plane that there is nothing that appeals to her at all. The God who works all things together for good. Remember that one? The Romans 8, 28. God. Well, he has eternally decreed that the result of Israel's rejection is is Gentile salvation, which will ultimately provide the incentive for her return. Now, that's a mystery. That's a mystery. Let me try to apply this. These couple of verses here just a little more sharply this morning. Does our relationship with Christ make unbelievers jealous or envious of us? That's my big question. Or maybe to sharpen the point a little, does your relationship with Jesus Christ make those who do not know them envious of what you have? Do they see you as a person relieved from the burden of trying to live under the law? Or do they see you as a person who preaches grace and lives law? You understand what I'm saying? Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Are you free this morning? Do you know the freedom of Jesus Christ? And and does that show up in your life day to day? Or is your life a complex set of do's and don'ts, laws to keep, things to do, things not to do. And so complex that no one can keep it, not even you. When the unbeliever looks at you, what do they see? Do they see something that appeals to them or do they see something that says, you can keep it because you don't keep it anyway? Or how about this one? Do unbelievers see you as having a robust faith that withstands adversity? Or do they see you respond to illness and economic downturns and unreasonable authorities in a reaction that is no different than theirs? What happens when things don't go your way? How do you respond? 
Do you respond in a way that makes those who do not know your God look at you and say, you've got something I don't have and I'd like to have it? Or do they see somebody who professes one thing with their mouth and does something else with their lives? Do people sense that we know God intimately, personally? Has our Christian faith enabled us to love and care for other members here of the body? Do people want to be a member of this church because they see the way we care for one another, the way we love one another, in spite of our differences? Or is the local Rotary Club more appealing? How about this? Do we live like Christ can return anytime? Or do we live like we know He's not coming in our lifetime? How do we make our daily decisions? How do we formulate our future plans? Oh, Christ, He's not coming. He hadn't come for 2,000 years. He's not coming in my lifetime. I don't have to worry about it. Or do we live with that sense of any day? The imminency of Christ, right? What will Jesus find you doing when He returns? It's a great question, huh? We need to ponder Jewish jealousy. Because in the mysterious plan of God, it is a means by which He is going to draw Israel back to Himself. But beyond that, we need to ponder restoration and resurrection down in verse 15. This is really cool the way Paul brings this together here. He says, but if their Rejection, that is Israel's rejection, be the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Wow. This is a classic argument of the lesser to the greater. Lesser to the greater. The lesser here in this is the reconciliation of the world. Paul says, Israel's rejection of Messiah, that is their crucifixion and resurrection of or rejection of Messiah, has brought reconciliation to the world of men. That's the lesser thing. Look at the verse again. The greater thing, what will Israel's acceptance be? That is, when Israel accepts and receives their Messiah, what will it be but life from the dead, beloved? Resurrection is what he's talking about. He's saying it's going to be resurrection. The rejection of Messiah has brought reconciliation to the world. Their ultimate recovery and conversion will be the event that signals the end of the age and the resurrection of the righteous. This is something to ponder. The hope of the bodily resurrection was always the great hope of every pious Jew. Every one of them. Give you a sampling here from Acts. Acts chapter 23, verse 6. Just listen. Paul's on trial here. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, and Paul knows, being a Pharisee himself, that the Sadducees deny the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection. 
Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. He says, You have put me on trial here over the resurrection of the dead. Your refusal to receive Messiah cuts you off from the resurrection. My proclamation of Messiah and his returning kingdom is your resurrection. Or Acts 26, verses 6 to 8. He says again, And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? The hope of Israel. The resurrection of the dead. Acts 28, verse 20, the close of it, Paul says, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. The sake of the hope of Israel. The hope of the bodily resurrection was inextricably tied in Jewish scripture to the coming of Messiah. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You can check it out on your own. The return of Messiah brings with it the resurrection of the dead. Jesus himself, by the way, constantly held out this hope to the people. He repeatedly showed himself to be master over death. Messiah, coming of Messiah, resurrection from the dead. That's why he goes through his public ministry and he continues to raise the dead. Because it is the evidence that he is Messiah. And so when Messiah returns and Messiah's return comes together with the, with the, the recovery of Israel, it brings with it the resurrection of the dead. Jesus himself said, John 5, verse 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That's exactly what Daniel talks about in Daniel 12. If their resurrection, or excuse me, if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, verse 15, what will their acceptance be? but life from the dead. The force of Paul's statement here is to remind you and me that we have a massive stake in Israel's future. This is not some academic topic for theologians to bat around. The recovery of Israel is the resurrection The event that brings the resurrection. For unless and until she experiences her promised restoration, then neither she nor you will ever achieve your great and comforting hope. Do you understand that? You hope in the bodily resurrection this morning? I've done a lot of funerals in my life for believers, and when we lay them in the ground... 
That's the thing we cling to. That there is the promised resurrection coming someday, right? When their glorified body will be reunited with their spirit who is already in the presence of the Lord. It is our comforting hope. And Paul says here, it is inextricably tied to the restoration of the nation of Israel. No restoration of Israel, no resurrection from the dead. That's something to ponder. That's something to ponder. Let me ask you a question here this morning. Do you have the hope of resurrection? If you were to die today, I, yesterday I was, Carol and I were out for a simple car ride, four way stop sign. I came to a full stop. Started out, person coming the other way, decided the stop sign was optional. Maybe it was a yield sign. I'm not sure what he thought it was. So um, the next thing I know, I look to my right, and there's a massive Lincoln Town Car coming right at her passenger door. Providence of God, I veer, he veers, the cars collide, but it's not T-boned. Could have been a lot worse, huh? People die like that all the time. When we went out for the drive yesterday afternoon, we weren't intending to get in an accident. You're sitting here this morning, you're not intending to die. But you might. But you might. Death is the great leveler. It stalks all of us. And no man knows the time. No man. So I ask you again. Do you have the hope of resurrection? If God withdraws the gift of life that He has granted to you in His providence, withdraws it today, what will happen to you? Where will you go? What is your hope? If your hope is not to spend eternity with your God, to experience the joy of future bodily resurrection when that body is raised from the dead in a glorified form and reunited with your spirit to enjoy the presence of the Lord forever, if that is not your hope, then you are not a Christian. For that is the hope of the Christian. It is what gets us through. If you don't have that hope this morning, you can. It is available to you. Paul says very simply, back in chapter 10, verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call out upon God. Call out upon God to save you. Turn from your wicked way and embrace the Lord God of Israel. We're going to sing here in a moment or two. And at the end of that singing, I'd like to talk to you. If you're here this morning, 
Whether you be up in the balcony, hiding. I can see you up there, you know. Or whether you're down here on the main floor. Maybe you're sitting in the back so you can get out the door fast. Don't leave. Do not walk out these doors until you know. I want you to come and I want you to talk to me. Tell me. Tell me about your future hope. And let me open the Scriptures with you and show you how you can have the hope that will be an anchor for your soul both now and eternity. Let me pray. Our Father, what a mysterious and mighty plan for the ages that you have wrought that would include the sending of your own Son, Messiah, to this earth to be spat upon and rejected by the very people to whom He was sent. That their rejection of Him and ultimate crucifixion throws wide open the doors of salvation to all mankind. And that we, through faith in His name, can enjoy life everlasting. And yet, our Father, in this great and mysterious plan, You are not done with Your people Israel. Those whom You have foreknown for the Scripture says that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That the wickedness of Your people has postponed their blessed kingdom, but it has not forfeited it. And that Christ is returning to set up here on earth that for which all the prophets wrote and spoke, that for which your people have longed. Ever since that day in the garden, when Adam and Eve exercised their own independence and plunged both themselves and us into a lifetime of misery. Lord God, we pray for the return of Christ. We beg you to send him quickly. The Scripture admonishes us to be on the alert, to watch out, to live our lives with glancing over our shoulder, as it were, looking for His return. Our Father, grant us a greater capacity to, to believe and to act in, in that way. And Lord, it will purify us of many of the sinful and foolish things that occupy our our thinking and our time and our resources. Lord God, we get so caught up in this world and all that it has to offer, and it's so unsatisfying. Purify your people, Lord. Let us long for the return of Christ. Let us proclaim His great name among the peoples. His coming kingdom to this earth. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus.